Welcome to 157 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. I think we're going to be talking about work to start off with. Fine, we start with whatever you want. Today, we have been working on Anyfu. Well, you've been working on it pretty hard, and we're, we're sort of hoping to get it... And you've been calling me throughout the day. <laughs> I've been calling you throughout the day to see, to see what the status is, and we're hoping to get something released um, either today or tomorrow, right? Yeah, so the, the plan is... Um, well, we initially talked about doing like a big launch. But I think the smart thing for us to do is to kind of do it in stages. And our first step is to get, you know, a handful to maybe a dozen experts who, who we know personally to register on the site as an expert, create a profile and see how that process goes. One thing to bear in mind is that you're building the bulk of the backend um, using App Ignite. And so even before that is to get a kind of a pre-version released so that I can go through that process and build a profile as well. And then okay. we, we can kind of do some back and forth between us and then release that to the experts. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, this is, I think, probably the obvious way to do things. I mean, you, you want to do things in steps where you do it in like alpha and beta releases or whatever. So I don't really know what kind of release you'd call this. This is just going to be like a, rather than releasing the whole site, we decided, okay, first thing we can, what we can do now at least is we can get through the profile creation step. I mean, we have a lot of other stuff built. In fact, we've been working on these, the other things, but we want to just get something, uh, we want to get some kind of contact with uh, some segment of our users, right? We want to get well, that. You've had the bulk of the profile stuff built for a while now. Um, and we've actually been working on the engagement journey so that people can come to the site and um, schedule some times. So I've been building the scheduler, a very complicated schedule widget well, actually, the code, there's a lot of code and there's a lot behind it, but it comes across as a very simple system on the site, which is kind of cool. Yeah, so this has been, this has been causing me a lot of stress because the whole interaction between the, the client and the expert is it, kind of complicated or can be complicated. And then to make it structured so that it's not like just emails going back and forth, which is very unstructured and, 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 and doesn't... Um, I don't, doesn't work well within the system. I mean, you, 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 you have all kinds of confusion that way. So we had to, we were like, okay, we're going to structure this interaction. So if a client wants to set up a time with an expert, they can specify some times, what they need help with. The expert can, you know, reply with some times and, and all that kind of stuff. And I could see, I went, I kept going back and forth in my mind about how that was going to work. And we had a lot of different discussions about it. We've talked about it on the show to a certain degree. And I think we finally nailed it. I think it finally, if it's not right, it's in the, it's in the neighborhood of right. It's pretty damn close. It's very close. And we've, we've spent a lot of time coding together, um, screen sharing, going through the journey. I, as, as I said, I've been building this scheduling widget and then you've been plugging that in to your stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm really happy. I think that with the schedule, which I think you've done a really nice job. Oh, thank um, you very much. I mean, it's it's gone through some phases. I mean, you know, we had this sort of vague idea of how it was going to work. And it's funny to think all the things we talked about, about how it was going to work. And as things sort of clarified, we're like, oh, wait, it's actually much simpler than that, right? I mean, it starts out as just vague idea. And 
and then you go down one route and then it's just completely the wrong direction. You back up a few times and eventually you get it right. And it's just sort of, yeah. Like I've built, I, I've, I've got a sort of, I guess like a, a miniature state machine within the schedule itself. And it's got, I don't know, like eight different modes that, that it can operate in. <laughs> oh, right, right. <laughs> and it's, it's been fun to kind of work through those modes. So each of those modes was something that we thought was going to be part of the journey. And actually what we ended up with is a new mode, which is essentially a combination of two modes, um, which worked quite nicely. Yeah, so the, 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 what the scheduler is, to, just to, so we can sort of clarify what we're talking about for our listeners, is, is when if you're, if you're the client and you, there's an expert you want to try and do a session with, well, what you want to do is say, hey, uh, I, I'd like to work with you. Here are some times that are available for me in the next you know, three or four days or next week. You know, could you possibly work with me during those times, right? Mm-hmm. And and when you try and specify that in a normal way, where you like have a drop list of calendar and times, I mean, it's just so annoying, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, testing. I did that at first just for testing, and I was I couldn't even test it because it was so annoying. I was hard coding the values, and and then when the expert gets that information, they if they're available during one of those sort of time periods, they can say, oh yeah, I can work, you know, Thursday at three o'clock. Right, and they can just select a time, and it goes back to the to the client. Well, yeah, so so the client basically with the widget we've got just drags time ranges that they're available, and then the expert gets the option to drag within those time ranges to say, "Yep, I can do within that," or they some they they can drag and suggest some other time range possibilities, and then um, ping it back to the ex to the client. Now, interestingly enough, this week I engaged someone um, through Elance in exactly the same way as I would have liked to from any food. Like I had to get, I had to get involved in some hardcore sugar CRM stuff. The sugar CRM is an open source CRM platform. Yeah. So, so this is going to be like the third time that I've done this and every single time it's come up trumps. And basically this is the any kind of use case, like the any food, pain point. It's like when you want to find an expert, um, you know, how do you find that? So I went, I went and searched through um, sugar CRM and of course, the first thing that I did as, as, the, um, as the client, when I actually found someone, I said, okay, look, can you, you know, I'm free these times. Can you do any of these times? Can you fit an hour in any of these times? And it was really good and timely that I did that, that I went through the real experience just like a day before we, we started plugging together this stuff, because I then plotted out the steps, step by step, you know, the email I sent to him, the email he sent to me, the email I sent to him, and then we've been able to use that to kind of inform us in terms of how we're building this process. Yeah, well, yeah, well, because we've actually talked about this a lot. I mean, it's not like we hadn't thought about this back and forth. I mean, I've probably spent, you know, tens of hours thinking about it in one way or another, um, either coding it or stepping back from the code, going, wait a minute, is this how it's going to work? We've talked about it, we've talked about it on the show. And every time we think we have it right, we come back and realize we don't quite have it right, you know, because like people do things in slightly different ways. So you need to be, you know, or some people it's, they need, they need help urgently. Some people are a little more uh, like, Hey, anytime in the next week would be great. Some people have a really tight schedule. Other people's have a really loose schedule and, and, you know, and it really depends. Right. And so we have to try and capture some, we have to be able to facilitate an interaction um, that can range quite a bit between the client and the expert. And you, your, your final, um, our final discussion on that was after you detailed your interaction with this expert. And that was helpful. 
I thought. Yeah. So the, the so the irony is is that we've kind of really nailed that down, but that's not the thing that we're going to first release, right? So the first thing we're going to release is just the capability for an expert to come along, sign up to the system, and create a profile, create a basic profile. Yeah. Well, because okay, well here's the thing. I mean, um, in order for us to test the whole scheduling, everything like that, I mean, you actually have to have experts on the system. You have to have clients registered. You actually have to. You know, they actually actually be trying to use a system, right? right. In order to use a system, money's going to be paid and, and transferred and all that stuff. So we can't do any of that until our payment system is set up. Our payment system can't be set up until we have a bank account. We can't have a bank account until we are, are to incorporate and have our federal ID, right? Which we did um, get an LLC this week. Yeah. So it was really interesting. What I was like, oh, so was that Monday? That was Monday, wasn't yeah. it? So it was Monday and... We went through all this back and forth. Actually, it was a result of talking on the show, right? We talked on the show, and then afterwards we talked a little more about it, about, okay, well, can we just have a PayPal account, a partnership, or can we do this or that? And it, and it just turned out that we, we had kind of got to the point where we had decided we, we had like a, a conversation with um, one, of, one of our accountants, because we share an accountant, but not, not, the, not necessarily the head honcho at the accountants. Oh, well, they're the, they're, okay, they work at the same they, firm. They, they work at the same firm, but, and we had... Based on his advice, we decided, okay, we're going to go with an S-Corp. So we were like, we, we had just filled out the form. We got the credit card details. Jason's finger was hovering above the button. Submit. <laughs> to I was click about to- submit, and we were going to have an S-Corp. And then he, uh, he got a phone call from a, for, for a different reason from his accountant, but this time from the head accountant. Okay, you, well, you no, because that. I had actually sent, I had actually left a message with uh, my accountant, um, Curtis, mm-hmm. uh, and you, I guess you had talked, you had called Gary. He's the other. Right. Yeah. You, you had called him on the same topic. Um, no, I, I, I'm speaking to, I was speaking to Gary independently just about some accountant stuff. Some, okay. Some okay. Other, so that, that yours was independent. I called, but you happened to talk to him first yeah. and you got us on a screen, uh, on a, um, we have a shared call, call yeah. kind of talk through it. But I mean, I don't think Gary had it wrong. I just think that we were able, uh, after having a long conversation with Gary, we clarified some of the information. And when we presented it in, in its entirety to Curtis yep. and had a longer, deeper conversation about all the potential trade-offs and what any foo would could be, what it was likely to be, where it was going to start, where it might end, he just he he was able to have, give us a more comprehensive answer. And he just said, listen, you might pay a little more in the order of a couple thousand dollars for an LLC than you will for an S-Corp. But with an LLC, you don't have to do board minutes. Um, you don't have to. Um, what was there's two things we had to do? Um, it was board minutes and payroll. Board minutes and payroll, um, and also just the general turnover that the company costs per year, right? So obviously, to do payroll, you're going to have to pay money for that. To do board minutes, you're going to have to either take time or pay money to get someone else to do it. With an LLC, you don't have to do that. But the the trade off is. But the other good thing about the LLC is that any stage in the future, we can turn that into a C corp or an S corp in whatever way we want. Yeah, that's that was the really good news about it. I mean, he said, "Listen, in, you know, if if you guys later decide you want to raise money for this thing, and and you and you, you, you professional money like from VCs or angels, and you need to be a C corp, he's like, it's no big deal. It's not a big deal. So we're like, well, great. <laughs> Let's just start with the LLC, and um, if you know, and, and if everything goes really well, then we don't have to raise any money, and it'll, it'll just work as an LLC. And if if it goes well, but we want, but we feel like, hey, we want to put rocket fuel in this thing, and we got to raise money for one reason or another, then we can come a C corp and do that. But the weird thing is with the with the LLC, and this is something I brought up to you as a fear, I think a few shows ago, was are we taxed on the money that we capture? 
versus the net. Yeah, well, that was the big question in the show we talked about, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and it seems like we're not taxed in the way that I was thinking, but there is this kind of weird thing called gross receipt tax or something like that, where you pay a very small percentage on the gross receipts in some kind of a way. So it's not like a full 10% tax. It's like a much smaller thing, but you still do get taxed on everything. Yes. Yeah, so in California, LLCs have, um, they have a gross receipts ta- uh, fee, yeah, fee, and that's so, what it is, yeah. It, and once you get over certain thresholds in your gross um, your gross revenue, you have to pay a, a certain um, flat amount at that level. Right, right, right. And it goes up from, I don't know where it starts, at 100000 and then it goes up to like, you know, $5 million or something at the top end, something like that. And, um, you know, I think at top end it could be like 13000 a year or something. Is that what he said? Yeah, so so it's it's going to end up costing us anywhere between – Depending on how much we we make, it's going to cost us anywhere between two and five thousand extra per year. But obviously, that will really depend on what our gross income is. Like, if if we're you know pulling in, if our entire um, cash churn is like a thousand a week or something, it's really going to make no difference whatsoever. It's sort of like once we start hitting a million, and uh, let's hope that we do, <laughs> that right. it makes just a few thousand difference. Yeah, well, and I, I, th- I think yeah, at the, at the low end is it, it, at the at the low end. I think when you when you factor everything in, it'll probably cost us maybe fifteen hundred dollars a year more for the LLC than the S corp. But split between the two of us, seven hundred fifty bucks. So seven hundred fifty dollars, not to have the extra complication of having a payroll, mm-hmm. having to be on payroll, and also having to do board minutes. And, and do that the right way because you know that's just the kind of stuff I hate doing yeah. and, and we'll probably forget to do and not do and it's gonna be a problem. So I'm like, let's just I'll pay seven for fifty seven or fifty just not to have the headache. So anyway, so we got that all done on Monday and we created the LLC. What was it bizfilings.com, I think right. is where we did it. And I guess seven to ten days. So hopefully this week I should get um in the mail the uh, forms in which case and then i just call up i think get our federal id number and then you and i are gonna like i guess meet up and go to the uh wells fargo branch near my house and uh set up a bank account i think so we've decided on how we're going to do the financials to start off with um we will use we haven't have we decided on stripe versus paypal at this stage (laughs) we've decided no we have decided on stripe we have ultimately we've decided on stripe right so we're going to use stripe stripe is going to sweep the money into our own bank account um, although that's not, that mightn't be the case, but anyway, let's just go with that. So Stripe's going to sweep the money into our own bank account. And then there's a number of payment processors who you can use, who will basically take the money out of your bank account and pay people via ACH or send them a check or PayPal, give them a number of different alternatives to pay them. Um, the one that we like the most is a, is a company called webmasterchecks.com. Um, and it's just spelled webmasterchecks, C-H-E-C-K-S rather than C-H-E-X. <laughs> and um, that looks like a pretty good system to get money out. And that th- that company looks pretty established. I mean, they are used, for example, to, to mass pay class action lawsuits. And in, right. okay. under those scenarios, they're sending out literally millions of checks. So, um, these, so this isn't somebody's weekend project no, on Hacker no, News. No. You know, this is a, this is a company that's been around. To, okay. Yeah. So, so that's kind of what we're thinking um, from that point of view. Okay, so just to get back to the the release that we're hope, that we're aiming for tonight, I don't know if you're going to have any time after the show tonight to do any more work, or maybe the release for tomorrow. But what, I think we should do it tomorrow because I mean it's what it's going on seven o'clock. We're starting the show. Yeah, okay. I could eat dinner, so let's just let's do it tomorrow. I think tomorrow's okay. Okay, so let's say so so. Do you think you can release 
by the end of tomorrow or in the middle of tomorrow? What sort of thing are you thinking? I think middle of tomorrow. I mean, I don't, so what I'm going to do is I'm just going to move this stuff over to um, anyfood.com, which is just like a shared web host temporarily. Yeah. I'll move it over there. And then the first thing is you go and create a uh, profile. That's, right. That's and then, you, then, done, then yeah. you call me up and you complain about the 57 bugs you found. <laughs> and then we fix those problems and whatever. Now, one of the things that we're going to have to do early on is um, get an SSL um, certificate because, you know, I, one, one of the reasons is, is that we need to get people's, when people sign up to be an expert, we need to get their social security number in order to 1099 them. Right. So if you do more than $600, of work on any foo, then we'll have to, we're going to have to do a 1099 form. So, um, in order to, to, to fill out a 1099 form, you have to have somebody's, you know, name, address, and social security number, I believe. So if we're going to ask people's social security number, we're, we're going to want to have the SSL right away. Right. And that also leads to other, other things like what does our security look like from a server side point of view? Like where do we store that social security number? You know, how hackable is our server? How do we deal with that? Mm -hmm. I guess you don't have any answers to those questions. Oh, you want me to, I mean, I don't know, <laughs> store it in the database. I guess. I'll, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. One of the first things we're going to do is we're going to find um, an AnyFood professional um, who knows that space inside out. Okay. And um, we'll, we'll basically work with them <laughs> and uh, make sure that it's as secure as possible. Yeah, but we have to collect it right away because that's one thing that our accountant, uh, Curtis, had said right off. He's like, look, you don't want to be in a situation where people are doing work and you don't have their, their W-9 information, which is, I think, what people fill out so you can 1099 them. Right. And uh, he's like, you don't want to be in a situation where they've done you know, a couple thousand dollars worth of work and then you can't get the information from them because they're not responding or who knows what, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to get all the information up front. So we can't have anybody doing any... any um, any work out through the site until until we have that well that's that's pretty much all i needed to talk about i just wanted to find out what we were you know what we were doing um what what our minimum version was going to be and whether, whether it was going to be launched tonight or tomorrow so i'm pretty good from from any few point of view unless there's any other stuff on it you want to talk about um no well one thing i was i'll just finish a, a conversation we started a little uh, earlier this afternoon, um, you were asking me about uh, the profile stuff and that's all has to do with the profile is part of what the user's dashboard yeah. um, site where they can go and change their, not only their profile, but they can look at session information, you know, edit their expertise, edit, um, you know, whatever. So um, one of the things that I, I had to change, which, I, I guess it's because our understanding of the system has just evolved since we first mocked it up, you know, whatever, a few months back, was that the idea of sessions. So, like, session information, once it's complete, is is a lot different than what a session looks like when it's in progress. What do you mean by session? Because people normally associate session to be, like, some kind of... <clears throat> Ongoing server side, client side. Yeah, no, no. This thing. is like a client. This is a session, a, a work session between a, a client and an expert, right? So if I do a session with you, if I, it's like, you know, you go to your, uh, I guess, your psychiatrist and have a session. <laughs> I know, think it's good do. to call it a work session because that will differentiate it and people will always understand. Well, I mean, I could talk about this, but the site, I mean, you, when you have a two words for something, it's, an, it's annoying. It makes everything right. really painful. So it, which is, it's a session. I mean, it's only programmers okay. that talk about that. So a, a, a session... So if I want to work with an expert, I do, I make a session request. I say, Hey, I want to work with you on this topic. Here's some times available. Right. And then we go this back and forth. But 
when a session is complete and and has been you know the, it's been paid and it's done, one of the last things that happens is the expert writes a title for it and a description, kind of like um, so it's like a recap. Like this is the title and this is what I did for this client. Okay, and that is what gets displayed on the profile of the expert. So then the expert when he sends the invoice. We'll set the total amount, write this title and this explanation. It goes to the, the, the client. The client approves it, and the client can say, oh, yeah, you know, yes or no, you can use my name in the, uh, in the profile, right. right, in the session description. And, yes, this seems like an accurate description of what happened. And you want the expert to describe it because the expert's going to be more articulate about it than the client because they're an expert on the topic, but also because it's in their best interest that it is very descriptive and well-written because it's going to show up on their profile where clients will be like, all right, I'm done. You know, already worked together or whatever, right? They're not Which gonna- is a very different scenario to Elancer Rodesk, where mm-hmm. basically the only thing that gets displayed on the profile at the end of the day is the original job description with um, some stars, yes or no. I mean, there is another little thing saying... Like, oh, it was really great to work with that guy. He was such a good provider. I would recommend him. There's that. But there is no kind of good breakdown of what happened. Yeah. So I think, I mean, I think that it, it's, it's, you, you, want to, you want the person to write it to be the one who has the most incentive the, to write it well, uh, do a good job writing it up. Agreed. And, um, and, you, and we want this on the site because if somebody's done 20, if an expert has done 20 sessions with, you know, 20 different clients you want to be able to go on and look at, well, what do they do for these clients? You know, I mean, like I'd like to be able to read and you, you go through and you can read through all the stuff they did be like, oh, wow, that's great. That's exactly the kind of stuff I need help with. Right. Yeah. And a client would be like, uh, you, know, uh, you know, I mean, it depends. It'll probably range, but a lot of clients would be, would probably skew to be short and not so descriptive. They'd write like one sentence. Oh, well, you know, I had this problem and it worked out and fixed it and it was done. Great. But, well, so we already <laughs> had that in the mock-up. So why, just wondering yeah. why you're bringing that up right now? Well, as, well, because we had a list, we just had a list of both upcoming as well as completed sessions. But an upcoming session doesn't have a title. It doesn't have a description. It just has a request. Right. And we also show the hours worked well, or, or reserved. But before a session happens, you don't have hours reserved. You just have a time that's going to start. You, know, you don't have a total amount that was invoiced. And you don't have any of that information. There are two different types of information. You have session requests and sessions. So you had to split that up um, from the way that we'd done it in the mock-up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's really simple, but I mean, that was just like one of the things you're asking, like, well, what are you doing? I'm like, well, I just realized this doesn't make any sense, you know? So you, you look at, you know, it's kind of like you look at your inbox and you can look at your archive. They're two different things. And I, I just had to, um, to get that, uh, get that sort of separated, you know, as, as two different pages or whatever. But it also reminded me, this is a, this is something I meant to brought up, bring up like, I don't know, it's like maybe six weeks ago, I read this article I was talking about how queuing is done, um, how people, how tables get ended up you used as like a queue like so like like an inbox so like if you have like a uh, your email table you really want to move you don't want the same table to be used for stuff that's being actively processed versus stuff that's done and because he's what, what ends up happening is it ends up getting really really slow and this guy had this really long explanation of how he keeps being brought into these you know database systems where you, know, you stick everything in one table because you think, oh, it's one record type. It goes in one table. And, you know, whereas you have, where in that table, you have this record has something like akin to a state or status. And that's being, you know, processed through the system. You have cron jobs looking at the statuses need to be done. What's the state of this? And he's like, that's just always ends up being a problem. What you want to do is once that stuff is no longer in a state to be processed, it's done. You move that off into like a separate table. And so that's one thing I, yeah, which, which makes sense. I mean, we should have session requests 
table, and then we have a sessions table. And sessions table are completed sessions that have been paid and approved and you know, all that kind of stuff that's done. But if it's that's exactly what I am doing with Plugio with the friend finder system. So it, it, I'm doing exactly as described there using a state, a state field to determine whether it's been processed or not. And that's exactly right. There are millions and millions and millions of records that no longer need to be in that table. And that's a great, great piece of advice and something to think about because that table is really, really kind of slow. So I should, I should have, should have been thinking that way from the beginning. Yeah, I'd never even heard that before. Um, you know, when I read that, it made it made a lot of sense. But I guess it's because I've never built a, a, a database, a web database that had that had a table that was that large. You know, all all the stuff that I built that was like mission critical and large was all on the trading side, and they didn't use relational databases. Right. So, and and all the web stuff I've done has nothing has been success, as successful as that. And had like, oh, I got you know fifty million records in this table. So um, <clears throat> when I read that, I'm like, oh, that's really good. That's really good to know that because that would have been for sessions. That would have been the exact thing that that we would have done. But a question, I mean, if if we're moving stuff from like an active session table to a non-active session table, mm-hmm. that basically supposes that we're never really going to search those tables then. We're going to have to create some kind of index search table or use some kind of search system. Have you given that yeah. any thought? Yeah, no, well, not really. I mean, we've talked about things. I mean, I think, I think what we'll do is we'll start, we'll just do something real, real simple just for the first, you know, get, get for, just get things up and going. Mm-hmm. Use the built-in MySQL full text search or whatever, and maybe you know have a few other little things in there. But then we can move to something like Solar or one of these other you know custom search engines that allow you to do all kind of you know cool stuff. I mean, I know I've we've we've talked about it a little on the show, and I've, we've had people leave comments that you know with all kinds of good pointers on what to do, and it sounds like that's where we would ultimately want to go. But I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know about you, but until I have the problem right in front of me. A lot of times I just can't spend that much time thinking about it because I have other stuff I have to worry about. So I just kind of like do like this cursory research. Go, okay, that that looks interesting. When it's time to actually build it, then I'll go and I'll read all the stuff and find out about it in yeah. depth. No, I know, I know exactly what you mean. <coughs> it is only when you see it in front of you that you can uh, that you can make head or tail of it a lot of the time. But I think I think with a lot of stuff though, is you just want to get something up and, and going, right? I mean, it's like if if we spend all this time, you know, I mean, maybe some people are listening to the show and they go, oh well, you know, I set up solar in an hour and a half. What's the big deal? But yeah, maybe that's true. But you could say that with everything, and I don't know, is it an hour and a half, or is it going to be eight hours, or is it going to be a couple of days, or I mean, what? I mean, if you, if you've never used it before and you have to, because you know, it's not just installing it and configuring it. It's like okay, now I got to read all the documentation. Now it's working a little differently than I understood. So it's just kind of like a, a question mark. So let's just go with something simple, and then maybe the question mark will be lucky and it'll turn out to be a two-hour job. You know, I don't think anyone can question. Put put out something basic, uh, learn from it, and iterate. <laughs> I think that's just that. That's the mantra. I've caught some heat on the show before about how I just do think kind of pragmatically. It's like, well, why don't you go ahead and do this this way to start? And I'm just like, well, you know, I don't know. I think I there's a certain amount of that, but a lot of people like, you know, there's I think there's a certain um, belief of abstracting things early and doing things right from the start. And I, because I'm such a perfectionist, I have to fight against my perfectionism and I have to fight against getting caught, you know, pre, you know, in, in, in this sort of premature optimization phase of abstracting all this stuff and creating all these interfaces and doing all this stuff and really still being many hours away from having something that's even workable and not even, not having anything you can learn from. So now I kind of force myself to be, you know, kind of sloppy in the sense of just doing something really ugly and simple and kind of prototype-ish. Like this is a prototype, right? This is not for show and tell. This is not, you know, 
to scale. This is just to get something up, kind of like a scaffolding, just to see if it works. You know, things are hard code, can be hard coded. Things are not pretty, but you know, um, I don't know. I think it's hard for us as as developers to do that sometimes because we're so um, there's there's such a big part of us that wants to do things right, the right way. You know. So talking about um, iterating. I have been reading a book, and I meant to bring this up on our last discussion show, <clears throat> but I've read more of it. And I, I, I encountered the book via a link that someone had left on Startup Guild. Um, so the book's called Running Lean. Have you ever heard of that? No. Mm-mm. It's by Ash Maria, M-A-U-R-Y-A. And basically, it's a, an e-book that's 278 pages long <clears throat> about basically bootstrapping and running lean. And really, it's really, really good. I mean, this is the book that I would have written. I've, I've always been kind of planning, you know, okay, when Plugio gets to 10 grand, <laughs> 10 grand a month, I want to write an ebook that just kind of get, takes you through the process and shows you what you need to know and about iterating and working <clears throat> with customers. This book, honestly, I can't recommend it highly enough. Running Lean, just, just Google Running Lean. I, I would recommend for our listeners to check this book out. It's $20 and um, basically uh, it, it just goes through all the sort of stuff that we've been talking about since the beginning of the show. And in fact, it would probably be really good for us to get this guy on the show now that I think about it. We probably, yeah, we probably should have just got him. I mean, um, so, so in his book, I'll just go through the table of contents. So part one, he's got um, problem, problem solution fit. And there he goes through creating your own lean canvas. And um, so he's come up with this concept called lean canvas that was going around Hacker news. Um, I guess like four or five months ago, did you ever see the lean canvas thing? Yeah, uh, you know, I, 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 if I did, I forgot about it because you responded with a lot of this information to an email we got from someone, and you were talking about Lean Canvas, and I'm just like, what the hell is you talking about? Yeah, so, so Lean Canvas is like where you lay out your business idea in its entirety on a single page. So you kind of put your problem statement, you put your how it's going to earn revenue, and all the things, all the kind of key components to a business plan on one single page. So he came up with this idea, Lean Canvas. It's not specifically his idea. He's kind of iterated on someone else's idea, and he's made it even kind of simpler. And he's also got a website called leancanvas.com. I'm not sure what that website's called. But anyway, so part one, problem, solution, fit. Create your Lean Canvas. Um, get ready to interview customers. Um, he tells you how to go through the problem interview with customers, how to move forward to a solution interview with customers. And then but the second section of the book is like product launch fit. So basically talks you through getting to release 1.0, getting ready to sell, getting ready to measure um, the minimum viable product interview. And then finally, part three, it's like there's this phase, even after you've launched, you're now moving from product launch fit to uh, what Sean Ellis calls product market fit. So he then goes through the stages of moving your product to a product market fit where rather than validating it, you're now kind of scaling it. You're in the scaling mode. So it's it's just really really good. Well, when did you read the book? Um, I'm, I keep on dipping in and out of it because like 278 pages is quite a lot, even for me, <laughs> and especially with all the all the stuff I've got going on. So I just keep on dipping in and out of it, going to various different stages. So if I'm thinking about any foo, I'll be going to the sort of part one, the phase that we're at. And if I'm thinking about Plugio, then I'll dip into the product market fit stuff. So well, how long you, did you get this? A few months ago or something? And no, just just a, just a couple of weeks ago. Okay. How yeah. well, did you, you come across it? What, how did, it was like, so, so someone was, um, I think someone posted up on Startup Guild, does anyone know any good eBooks to help you get started, you know, as an entrepreneur? 
and right. pe- people posted a few different links and this was one of them. I went to check it out and, you know, really liked it. Cool. Well, um, yeah, well, let's get this guy on the show. Do you want to send him an email? Or yeah, do you want me okay. to I'll do that. I'll why, don't, why don't you do it since you've been reading his book? Sure, I mean, that, sure. You can, um, that, w- that, that would be great. And we got, a, I've got an email from another guy um, who sounds really interesting. Um, you know, I don't have his name right here. Um, it, 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 was, it was along the lines of this disruption theory. Um, like, remember we had, um, was it Thomas Thurston on? About, right, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. A while back. That was a while back, I mean, eight months ago, a year ago or something. And um, this guy has done a lot of work in the same area. Then he says he thinks his models, you know, are, are different in a lot of different ways and uh, might be better in some ways. So, um, yeah, well, I'm going to get him on, too. I think that would be yeah, a great. Yeah, because he, well, so I've, I've already written to him and kind of selfishly asked him about Pluggio. Yeah, you plan. did that. I'm like, what? <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> but, we um, need to start talking about email etiquette. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, he responded. He seemed like it was, I mean, anyway, I think he's going to, he's going to, he will come on the show. And he seemed to like the show as well. Um, but he wrote an email, uh, sorry, an article, a blog article about back in the day in 2007, basically when everyone else was saying, oh, the iPhone is not going to really work, it's not going to make it. He basically wrote a very good, deconstructed the reasons why it fits into disruption theory so well and why it will make it. And he turned yeah. out to be very correct. Yeah, I like that article. I read that um, last night. And uh, is so, yeah, well, well, well let's, yeah, I, I, I don't have, do you have his name here? Yeah, his name is Paul Pates. Um, he's CEO of a company called innovative disruption that's innovative disruption.com and i've got the email looking at it right now see he would be the perfect kind of person to have on any photo too that's true yeah because he, he just he came across as very knowledgeable in his articles and in the email discussion that we had so yeah totally. i mean just imagine if you're kind of um planning your your product launch or you're pl- planning I mean, product launch, you're planning your, your product strategy or, or should we be doing this? Is this the right market or is this the right product? And say, okay, I want to, you know, lay it out for him and work with him for a few hours. So as far as we're concerned, this is something we haven't discussed very much. I think we're both online with this, but when we launch or certainly within the first three months, we don't just want to be about tech. We sort of want to be about startup. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, well, I think the, the kind of... Um, Conclusion we came to, I can't, I can't remember if this was during the disco, the, the show with, stuff. Yeah. yeah, with Joanna Weeb or it was after we stopped recording, but because she, she said she would love to be on and her um, husband, I guess Lance is her husband, Lance is her, her, her <laughs> <partner>. husband. <laughs> it's such a cumbersome thing to say, I'm not really sure what I'm supposed to say. Anyway, he's an expert in A-B testing and she's like, yeah, Lance would really like to be on any food, he keeps talking about it. And so I was like, you know, if we if we don't just do tech people, but people that sort of in the vicinity of tech, the kind of people that tech people want to hire that, you know, SEO X people who are, you know, like people like um, Patrick McKenzie, you know, right. the AB testing experts, you know, people, experts like, you know, Paul Pates. I mean, you know, Thomas Thurston, you have all these different sort of related um, expertises um, that I think would be good. So rather than just being like, we're just, we're just to have experts on Python and SQL. It's like, you know, we have people, experts and, you know, in well, it's a business. It's still within a niche, right? So it's within the startup. So we're not really boiling the ocean by doing that. We're sort of sticking within the niche of creating your business and finding very high level expertise about building a web business. Yeah. So I think the tech web startup neighborhood is right. kind of where I'm, there's lots of complementary different skills and that are needed that you, you know because what happens is you you're you're trying to solve this problem and you're 
often a generalist, but with some specialist knowledge, but there, you need deeper knowledge in a lot of these other things. And it's like, well, you know, if you, if you're trying, if we're trying to just get programmers, programmers often don't need the help of other programmers, you know, I mean, sometimes they do, but sometimes they need this other stuff. So, so when are you thinking of um, inviting Paul Pates on? I don't know. We could invite him next week. I mean, the question is you, let's see, have we invited anyone else? Well, I mean, we you, did. You, we have, we, the, the Dewala guy. So what, during our um, uh, research for the payment options, someone posted, I can't remember whether it was through, it was actually through Twitter. Yeah. Someone posted through Twitter um, after listening to the show to me, a link to a company called Dewala, and that's D-W-O-L-L-A.com. A guy called Ben Milne um, and another guy called Shane Neuerberg founded this company. And essentially what they're doing is, they're, you know the way we have like a credit card system and we also have, um, I guess, like American Express. These guys are creating a new payment system, <laughs> a new, basically a new way of being paid, um, which essentially is... I think I don't know whether it uses the ACH network, but it's very, very similar. So it's direct deposit between accounts, but you only ever pay 25 cents to transfer mm-hmm. money. It doesn't matter how much tr- money you transfer. It could be 10,000. It could be 1,000. It's just 25 cents, one quarter per transfer. So these guys um, are a good possibility for us to potentially pay experts. So, yeah, so we're going to get have, – have you communicated with um, either of them? Sent them an email and i um, going to try and get Ben Milne on the show just because basically what he's doing is so disruptive and it's, you know, it, it really is a David V. Goliath story. So I thought it would be very interesting to get him on the show and especially since they've bootstrapped that whole thing already and I think they're, they're currently processing something like, I don't know, like $6 million a month or something, like a huge amount of money. Like so, okay. so they're already well well up there, you know. Right, right. Yeah, definitely get them on. So, it, so we need to lock that down or figure out when that's going to be and then see if we can get Paul Pates on as well and then get this guy, Ash. Is that his name? Ash, his first name? The guy that's uh, the running lean? Ash Maria. Maria. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's three people. Yeah, so it's all go. Get. It's all go, yeah. isn't it? It's good. It's all go. So, uh, you know, one question I want to ask you about re- the running lean book. What have. W- we done um that are in line with the book and what have we done that are at odds with it well to be honest it for part one we haven't necessarily done it in order but we've pretty much done the perfect version of part one which is problem solution fit so we haven't specifically created a lean canvas but we have in our in our brains like we've we've whenever we've spoken to anyone we've been able to articulate what we're trying to do what our problem is what our value proposition is and um, we have interviewed customers. I mean, you know, at, at MicroConf, we went right through that. Um, we've gone through the problem interview. And so that's, we've been speaking to them and this, the solution interview. So basically, we've done that whole first part where we've really iterated with lots of people. And actually, when we were speaking to, um, we, we were recently on uh, Startups for the Rest of Us podcast with Rob. Well, Watt. the, the, the show is going to be released this week, right? Yeah. So if you, if you listen to that show, one of the things that Rob mentions is that every time he, he meets us, we're always talking about it, thinking about it, iterating on it. And that basically is a, a big part of the way this book talks. Right. Well, yeah, thinking out loud and asking people. And we talk about it on the show and we have people, you know, email us about it. And we, you know, we talked about it a lot at MicroConf, for, uh, you know, as one example. We had like to a big brainstorming though. session. To co- like, it's, not, it's not just brainstorming, you know, to just anyone. Like we're brainstorming to the, to the right people, the people who are 
our target market. Well, yeah. Well, I keep talking to people who are, would be interested. Well, I, I, I've talked to two different types. I've talked to people who would be interested in being experts, and I've talked to people who would be interested in, in, in hiring experts. Right. You know, and sometimes they're, they're one and the same. Or sometimes, um, you know, they lean one way or the other, but they have input on it. So, yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to know. I mean, the only thing that we did that was sort of unlean was getting was spending some money on the logo and the design before we had right. you know, maybe roughed out a working prototype of the site. Yeah, good point. Right. We, we totally didn't need to do that, <clears throat> but we, we needed to do it because, in a way, you needed to exercise that ghost, right? You needed, to get, you needed for that to happen. What do you mean? Well, you know, we, we, we kind of had discussions beforehand and... Um, like we spent a long time arguing backwards and forwards. Like I didn't feel it was needed, but you felt that it was needed for various different reasons. And it wasn't until we started really going through that process and saw just how much it was slowing us down. We decided, okay, let's pull back from that and focus on pushing the product out. Yeah. So, well, at least we got, we got some stuff I and mean, we got the, um, we got the logo designed. We got the, the mood board design. So we got an overall design thesis. We got a, um, a, you know, basically a rough design for the, um, profile page and we got this awesome character which i think is very um is going to be great for the um sort of the brand itself so that was all really helpful i thought i think i thought it brought a lot of the um i guess it brought the brand together and for us and our brains because otherwise we spend a lot of time just thinking and arguing and talking about it now it's just kind of like we kind of settled like we kind of know what it is it did turn it into a real thing and it made it more likely to happen so i will say that's really good for it and oh one thing to say on the lean canvas, one one of the things that the lean canvas has, it has a little box. What's your unfair advantage for this business? So we have what I would what they would class as an unfair advantage for this business. And and that's basically because we've been doing the podcast for two years. And because of because we're networked through doing the podcast, through interviewing people, through basically that kind of brand presence that we have. And, yeah, yeah. you always find that competitive advantage stuff kind of an interesting thing because I don't think when people say competitive advantage that it, it, it's an advantage over everyone. It's just an advantage over most people, right? right, right. I mean, it's like, yeah, are there other people? There are plenty of people out there who are as networked as us or more networked. The people out there who have 50,000 Twitter followers and, you know, are very well known and in Silicon Valley and places like that who would have an easier time than than us. But if you compare us to the general population, um, we're in pretty good shape. You know, we have an advantage. But it's almost like we're kind of in exactly the right place because we're not too high up where we're so kind of far removed from those experts. Like we've, we are basically those experts. That's us, right? <laughs> we're the kind of people that we want on this site. I mean, I know I'm going to have a profile on the site. and I'm well, going to I don't do know. A- I mean, that's an interesting thing because I keep wondering if I don't know. I'm such a generalist. I don't know if I feel comfortable saying I'm an expert in any one thing. I know, I know some about a lot of uh, – I know something about a lot of different things, but I'm not sure I'm an expert in any one thing. That's, that's, that's me. That's kind of just my, I'm kind of a jack of all trades kind of. I was thinking about that. And that's basically the beauty of the way that like, you know, not to, (laughs) not to big ourselves up too much, but that's beauty of the way, the beauty of the way that we've designed the profile. So basically with the profile, you can, you can outline any specific expertise that you've had. So for example, I mean, as, as, as a proof of expertise as something, you know, 
the um, Uber tracking system that you've built, what do you call it again? The Uber dispatch system is a pretty big proof of concept for you writing Node.js, kind of high-frequency um, stuff like that, right? Okay. So if you had that, even just that, on your profile, along with maybe the, the Prezo, you know, high-end JavaScript stuff, like just those two things, I think are enough of a, a really core expertise that it would be worth a lot of money to someone to find someone who could do that straight off the bat. You know, just the same as I have experience in building um, Safari, Firefox, and Chrome extensions for free price alerts, you know. I know exactly how to do that. Like, a lot of people want to build extensions for, for these three different browsers. I've done that. I've got the proof of that. I've also built um, <clears throat> EasySQL, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, the d- d- database abstraction layer that's, you know, used on millions of websites. <laughs> so that would be another key expertise that I could place on there. So even though you kind of are a generalist, you you do have expertises in specific places. Yeah, I have fine-grained fine sort of expertises. Which I'm, Slices I think people things. would like, you know, I think people need. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's true. That's true. I, it's, it's, it's just um, some people are really, um, are very specialist oriented. Like they just really get into certain things. And they just, they just learn everything there is to know about it, right? You'll meet some person who's that way with say SQL or with, you know, a particular programming language, right? And they just know, they know all the esoteric, uh, you know, es- esoteric sort of um, things about it. And, and they, and they know it off the top of their head, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to look it up. Um, and like for JavaScript, for me, it's like, yeah, I've done, I've been doing hardcore JavaScript for a long time, but there are certain parts of it where it's like, you know, I don't really do that very much. And it's going say, oh, well, you know, when you're doing like a closure and this and that, is this always the case? I'd be like, ah, you know, I don't know. I'd have to look that up. I mean, I'd have to take, but I'd have to run a little experiment, right? We're talking about business like that. This is what I think's important. We're talking about businesses. Like a business isn't going to come along and say to you, oh, wh- when does a closure, you know, when should you use a closure? Like a business is going to come along and say, I need a dispatching system or something like that, right? Right, right, right. You know? yeah. Well, so, yeah, that's right. I mean, so that's what's kind of interesting. There was, a, there was an article I saw pop up called um, You Don't Know JavaScript. And the guy was kind of complaining about how all these people are saying they're JavaScript programmers where they really don't know JavaScript at all. You know, they're right. just they're just really novices. And um, he kind of divided it into like novice, intermediate, and advanced. And the advanced stuff was you know, was, you know, there's, uh, I don't know. I mean, yeah, with the advanced topics and they was talking about th- things that I, I don't think in, unless you're writing, like, unless you're working in the jQuery core or something like that, you're probably not going to have to know that well, or you'll, you, or you can look up and experiment and go, okay, I guess this is how it works. And it was just so funny because it's like, you really don't have to be advanced in most of these technologies to build high quality software. It's only knowing that stuff and sp- certain instances it becomes really important and sometimes it's like well it's obvious i need to know this better to make this thing work better it's like so, saying it, it's like <clears throat> saying to be a good programmer you've got to be an advanced machine code specialist yeah right it's like you don't need to know that right With, there's different layers different levels of the system like i mean you could always argue that well if you did know that you could build a better system and i don't know i think yeah in some cases you could argue stuff like that like but um Anyway, I just thought it was it was kind of interesting um, reading that because I was just like, you know, looking at those advanced topics, I was like, I mean, how often does that really come up? <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, I've written a lot of JavaScript. I've written a you know both on the server and client side, and then pretty complicated stuff. And some of the things he's talking about have have just come up like once or a few times in like the last 
six, seven years. So anyway, I, I was saying that I think part of our <clears throat> unfair advantage is that we are the experts as well, but we also have a kind of highly visible network of experts that we're friends with and that we can kind of bring them on board. I, I don't think that it's like a ridiculously over-the-top advantage, but I do think that it can kind of qualify as, from a lean canvas point of view as an un, it's an example of what you would put in that box there, an unfair advantage. Yeah, I, it's a lot, e- a lot easier for us to do this than, than, than uh, you know, say, your average developer to say, oh, you know, I know like a few people who write code. You know, it's like, okay, well, you're going to have a hard time, you're much harder time getting a bunch of your experts and stuff on there, I think. Exactly. I mean, so, so if the podcast has brought us anything for the last two years of, of like toiling and hard work every week, at least it's brought us that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. Well, we always said from the beginning, it's like build an audience once. And then you don't even really have to know what you're going to do later. But if you have an audience, then you can, it becomes an unfair advantage or it becomes an advantage for doing something else. Because most things that you want to do in the start that are entrepreneurial or even if you're an entrepreneur, even if you're like, say, I want to do, I want to, op- I want to create some big open source project, right? Well, if you know a whole lot of people in that, in that field, it's kind of hard to like get stuff going. But if, if you do already have a pre-existing you know, audience, then it makes it easier to get stuff going. So we've always thought that that would be the case, right? Always hoped. (laughs) Always hoped that that'd be the case. I mean, honestly, I I was hoping that we'd have a bigger audience than we do. But, uh, you know, I've just discovered it's like, it's hard. I mean, you know, Rob and Mike, I mean, I don't think if they're large, if their audience is larger than ours, it's not by much. And it's, it's, uh, and, you know, they had a, you know, they have the whole, you know, micro conf, micropreneur academy um, thing working for them for years. And Rob's had a big blog for a long time. And it just shows you how hard it is. But it's not just the audience. It's interviewing 100 people who are experts. It's building oh, yeah, those right, relationships, right. right? So it's like that, that, that's like a, you know, 50 to, 50 to 100 relationships that we've built up over the last two years. That's true. So like we can actually send an email to Amy Hoy or Patrick McKenzie or, right, you know, yeah. Peter Cooper or whatever and say, hey. Dude, check this out. We still any, <laughs> you know, right? I mean, yeah, we could do that, right? Right. Yeah. For before, you know, you can't really send an email to them and expect much response without them going, "Who the hell is this person emailing me?" <laughs> right. So anyway, but, um, at least I hope that's the case. Maybe they'll be like, "I forget well, who are you again." <laughs> well, this this could be like the danger of us, you know, being being public about the building of this, like things like this. It could it could essentially kill our business potentially by by being this open about it. What do you mean? Well, just people may go, oh, well, you know, they think that's an advantage. I'm going to contact those people anyway, and I'm going to copy any foo. <sighs> yeah, it's just, see, that's the thing. We've talked, we've talked about this before, but I'll, I'll give us again. I, people aren't going to steal your stupid idea. That's, that's actually should be a blog post. <laughs> and this is why. It's because we haven't even proved this isn't going to work. It's true. As a business. We there's think been, it's going to work. It, it's all just hypothesis. You know, I mean, there are plenty of businesses out there uh, the entire range of company things that are making five grand a month to making five million a month that you could go after and say, "Hey, I'm going to go compete with that." They've already established a market. I don't have to educate it. It's already proven. I'll I'll do a twist on it. I'll compete on the low end. I'll compete on the high end. I'll compete in Europe. I'll compete, you know, wherever. I'll I'll do a different thing and. Which would be a much smarter thing to do than say, hey, I think this idea sounds kind of good. I'm going to go compete against this unknown thing. You know, it's just kind of dumb. I think that Basecamp might be the king of that. Like Basecamp kind of 
you know, proved itself. And I think that probably has more competition than anything else. <laughs> yeah, well, and because you don't have to have any uh, particular domain expertise to do it, right? To, to, to I mean, build no, that, right? You, yeah, you don't have to know any of the tasks and milestones and, you know, whatever. I mean, that's why people build things like that, because you have a lot of young coders who are in their 20s who, you know, they're in college or just been out of, col- been out of college three or four or five years, and they don't really have any particular domain expertise. So, you know, so they're like, well, you know, I don't, I'm, I haven't worked in the bio, you know, medical field. So I don't know any, I can't write anything in there. I don't know anybody. I don't know how the company's working on the businesses. I don't, haven't been in the financial world. I don't know how that, you know, well, I, I don't know anything, so any, any particular domain. So I have to build something that's real, just generic and consumer. I think the other thing is that Basecamp is so simple and they've been kind of unwavering and unbending about keeping it simple and not adding features that what happens a lot, developers will get into that and they'll get frustrated that it doesn't do extra little tweaks and they'll think okay i know i I can make this but i can add new features and then those new features are going to make it a perfect competitor and people are going to want to use my system over Basecamp. well they discover it's harder to launch a business than it's just writing a piece of software you know yeah i mean that's why a lot of i think a lot of developers go after building mobile apps because it seems so much less of a business you know they just can register an app and put it on there but that's why so many of those things just don't make any money. It's like there's this huge power curve where it's like this very small percentage make a lot of money and then another slightly larger percentage makes some money and then everybody else makes almost nothing. There's a lot of backlash against mobile apps at the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, have you, have you been noticing that on Hacker News? Like a lot of people, a lot of blog posts and people just talking about, I think TechCrunch reignited the flame. I mean, it's, it's been going on for, you know, six months because there's just so many millions of apps. And um, do we really need an app for every little thing? You know, um, is it really like it, it kind of muddies the water and probably what's going to happen is there's going to be some kind of market consolidation. And that always happens. You know, you always have this sort of back and forth, right? It's like nobody's doing it. And then some people start doing it and then it, and, and the work gets out, they're making money. And then everybody rushes in and then, and then it finds out that a lot of people waste a lot of time and money because there's no way for them to make money. And then they drops off and then it dies. And then there's not enough people doing it. And then so people start rushing back in, right? It's just a huge back and forth. And it's, it's good. It's always like that with markets. It's just, it's overbought and it's oversold over and over again. Hmm. And the, the idea is that you want to be buying what everybody else is selling. You want to be selling what else is buying. <laughs> you know, that's what you, you, you just want to, that's what I always say. It, the, the good sort of rule of thumb is like when your mom or the taxi driver starts advising you on like it's time to buy stocks or it's time to buy real estate, that's the last call. That's the final call. <laughs> you know, you better be out the next morning because it is over, you know. Um, you know, like, you know, it's like, you know, we were reading back in like 2006 or whenever it was or two when, uh, you know, people were, you know, all these people who, who had no expertise in real estate are buying and flipping homes. I mean, that, that's like that was it. That was the last call. Right. Mm. And it was just about our musical chairs. And, and, and those people were going to find out there is no chairs left. And the same thing with the whole dot com and everybody starts doing buying stocks. I mean, that was it. The, the, the pros were were selling to those people at that point. They were like, this thing is, is, is over. It's completely overbought. So. We were <laughs> we to- well, I, I didn't prepare anything for this show, but we're, we were already like almost an hour into the show. Um, so I know that you've got a few links and a few stories you'd like to talk about. So why don't you yeah, go Yeah, sure. Let's go. I actually divide them up into sections. Um, How many you got? got? Well, I mean, we don't have to get through all of them or I'll just kind of blitz through them. But, sure. um, so we got the dark side, which we did 
a little bit last week. Fringe Science, Your Brain on Crack, Follow the Money, Man, That Guy's an Asshole, <laughs> and Miscellaneous. <laughs> okay, I want to start with Man, That Guy's an Asshole. <laughs> this is kind of like topics on like Jeopardy or something. All right. Well, they only have one for that, but that the story about Zynga, you know, like how um, Mark oh. Pincus is like demanding firing people if they doesn't give back the ha- their half of their unvested stock options or and whatever. And using Google Chef as the example. I didn't read that. That was the one article that I printed out that I didn't read. Did you read that article? Yeah, I did. So, so basically, the, the, they said, we don't want any situation like Google Chef to occur. So that story is like when... The Google chef, the first guy, was one of the first people in at Google, and he ended up walking away with $20 million worth of stock, right? Okay. So, that, so he was saying, like, that's a bad thing. But then, um, on the surface of it, you know, if you if had a cursory think about it, you would think, yeah, yeah, that is really bad. Like, there's just some chef shouldn't walk away with $20 million. But then the, the counterpost to that was from a, an, another worker who was there at Google at the same time and spoke about all the reasons why... The, that Google chef made such a massive difference to the company. Like, so first of all, he was a really, really good person to, to, to brainstorm problems with. Second of all, he had food available all times of day and night so that as a developer, you never, the food was so good, like, because he was such a gourmet chef, you never needed to think about, you know, where am I going to go and get my hot dogs? You never needed to leave the building. You never needed to do anything other than just go to that guy and say, can I have this? And he'd give you whatever you wanted and it, it would be incredible, right? So wow. that would keep people's heads down, like coding basically all the time. And that extra extra coding and extra just problem solving made all the difference at the beginning. And so he, so that he said, as far as, as far as he was concerned, that guy contributed more to the company than he did as a senior coder. Hmm, that's interesting. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean... I have heard some not. I've read a few things about uh, Mark Pincus. It's, it's Mark Pincus, right? Right. That's yeah. Name? No, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. They're not very flattering. I mean, I guess um, he, I, there was some article about him like six months ago about how he's just like yelling at all his employees and how they were just ripping off all of these other game makers. Like they wouldn't. They weren't even ever trying to create something um, original. All they would do is rip off other really small independent game game making companies. Yeah. Do you remember reading that? Um, no, I didn't. But. But it sounds plausible. Yeah. So, I mean, that whole Zynga thing, and it just really, I don't know, gives me a bad taste. I'm, I'm not impressed by that guy at all. I think, I think he definitely deserves the man, that guy's an asshole well, <laughs> segment. I mean, if you make you promises know. to people and bring them on with stock options, I mean, what is the point of stock options if you're just going to renege and pull them away? I mean, it, it's like, well, work out some other device to, to entice new people. Like, the first people you've given them the stock options, you've made those promises... I mean, well, just give away some of your own stock. You yeah. know, what I mean, he, just rip it off it because you fear you, you. He probably has way more than all of those people combined. Of course, of course, right? And he just is. He just he's just being an asshole. And it it sounds to me like um, did you, you remember that thing that was it happened in Skype? Uh, this the whole Skype thing. Like um, was it three months ago? Right. Where oh, I'm I, I'm really foggy in this, but I think something like this was Skype. Skype was bought by. They were bought and sold somewhere. Who, who bought I mean, them? this is the difference between us, our show, and something like This Week in Tech. Like, those, these pun, those pundits, 24-7, are thinking about this, reading these people's names, and kind of memorizing this stuff. Like, we just don't 
we're not well, that they, kind of well they they have pre-prepared topics right yeah, like yeah. here are 10 topics so they each one of them know the topics i mean i'm we're just like going off at a random ver- i'm just bringing stuff up that yeah. i read you yeah. know so three months ago so but anyway but it's I like think, skype yeah so skype was bought or sold by somebody you'd look it up do your do your like your just-in-time research you always do that okay you're pretty fast who is scott by scott bought by oh microsoft Right. Okay. I thought that, but I, I, but for some reason it sounded wrong. And I was like, I'm going to say it. I'm going to really sound stupid. <laughs> it's like, it's like, so Microsoft bought them. And I guess what happened is they fired some people like right before. And because they weren't employed or something during the acquisition, like didn't, their stuff didn't invest and they didn't, you know, basically they just screwed yes, them off. And that, that's something sucks. like that. I mean, just it was oh. so nasty. And see, I, I I was kind of under the impression that Silicon Valley things more or less operate on the up and up because it was so public. Everything was so visible that you really couldn't do that kind of stuff. But clearly that's not true. Right? I mean, I Zing is doing it, Skype did it, and they're just gonna kinda get away with it. I mean, Zing is the you know, the Mark Pink is just like, fine, think I'm an asshole, whatever, I'm a billionaire, screw you. Right? I worry of- for people who bank their fortune on stock options i worry for that that model in general um I, I mean obviously for some companies it can really work out but the truth is is it's so much longer than you think like the actual idea of that of those stock options turning into real money is a big deal like i mean i've been involved in quite a few stock options deals and none of them have ever got anywhere close to making real money and even if they did get to the point of making real money there would be like another couple of years in the company being courted for purchase and due diligence and just so many different processes to go through before it really did invest into something that was actually any money that I could take out of the company and turn into anything. Yeah. And it's usually it's like four years to fully vest. I mean, usually after a year you get like a quarter vest and then you have some kind of fractional vesting up to the fourth year. Yeah, but what's and, vesting? Yeah. Vesting's nothing. If, if, if the company's not being sold or the company's not IPO'd, what's vesting? Yeah. If there's no liquidity event, then it doesn't matter. Even if you're fully vested and it's, there's no way to, it doesn't matter. But I'm just saying you still, first of all, have to work there for a number of years before you really get any substantial vesting. Right. Yeah, so, so you work and, there for four years and then you got to wait another four years for the, for the liquidity. Yeah. I mean, you hear about that. I mean, obviously when it works out, it works out really well, right. For the Google, the people who are early at Google and at Microsoft and places like that. I mean, you know, it worked out like magic. Right. But um, I don't know. Okay. Right? It's- uh, it works out like magic for, for those kind of companies. But, but what, I, what the point I'm making is let's say a hundred companies become successful companies, right? And, and Google being one of those companies that successful companies, how many of those companies would your vested shares actually turn into any money within a kind of 10 year period, even if they were successful? Yeah, I don't know. Well, you know, I wonder how that works now with second market. I mean, can you can you sell your shares on second market of a company that's like um, well known? What second instance? market? I mean, people, Tell me about that. I don't know if that. I don't know that much about it, but I know like for people who are, are trading back and forth like shares on of of like Facebook and things like that. Um, you can, I think, if you're an accredited investor, for instance. What it's you like a, it's like a tracker, sell. like it's sort of like no, a- it's it's like you can it's 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 private it's private transactions. So like you know, Facebook isn't public, so you can't buy and sell shares of it. You know, you and I could not buy and sell shares of it like you can of Google, right? right. If I want to go buy Google, I can just go put a buy order in and hit somebody's offer and, and own it. Facebook can't, but at second market, I think 
if you're an accredited investor, for, and for anybody who doesn't know, accredited investor, somebody has over a million dollar net worth and has made, I think, over 200000 for two or three years in a row, um, then I think you could probably participate on second market, which means there are people who are maybe Facebook, let's say, um, uh, who own Facebook stock, whether they were investors or early, um, uh, early employees or whatever who want to sell some of their stock. And I think I could sell it. But don't Facebook have some kind of ban against that i mean can't can't they kind of internally say you you know you can't sell those shares you know i don't know that much i mean let's see what it says um he says the and i'm on second market stock and it says um Companies who implement a controlled liquidity program gain tremendous business advantage, transform stock options into powerful incentives for retaining and attracting employees, gain the flexibility to bring in strategic investors without diluting current shareholders. Da, da, da. So I think, you know, I mean, I guess it probably depends on the company. I mean, the company can obviously write in certain restrictions in their, uh, in their stock option plan or whatever that, you know, we're private, that you have to get approval of company management or something to buy or sell your shares. But, you know, maybe you can imagine that a company like Facebook or whatever wants to remain private because it's, it's much less expensive to run a private company than a public company. You don't have the, all the Sarbanes-Oxley regulations and you don't have to be as public, but you don't have to release all your information, right? You can be more secretive. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the insiders, not only investors, but some of the management and founders are like, hey, you know what? I'm worth $350 million on paper. But I'm, st- but I, I don't really have any personal liquidity, right? I, I, I like to buy a house. I like to, you know, take care of my parents. I'd like to, you know, put my sister through college, right? And, yeah. and this allows them a mechanism to do that. That's interesting because a lot of, you know, a lot of investment discussions are, what's your exit? What's, what's the exit going to be? It's going to be like an IPO. It's going to be a sale. No one ever mentions something like this. Are, are we saying that? there's a kind of shift in society, a shift in business where this kind of second exit, second market can become a new kind of exit mechanism. Yeah. Like it says right here, largest marketplace for private company stock over 550 private stock transactions amounting to nearly 700 million completed since 2008. So that's not a lot of transactions, right? Mm. 550. That's nothing. So, so I mean, you know, that was a 2000, so it's almost four years. Um, so maybe a little more, a hundred, a hundred a year. So you're talking, you know, just, uh, yeah, that's not a lot of, that's not a lot of transactions. Yeah. But it's it's pretty big transactions. Yeah, they probably are. I mean, you know, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, they're probably people, um, who are, uh, you know, they're selling millions of dollars, you know, I mean, you're not going to sell like, you know, $3,000 worth of shares probably. You're like, okay, you know, on paper, I'm worth 150 million. I'm going to, you know, sell 10 million of this and, uh, and put that in the bank. It's an you interesting know. concept though, to, um, to create some new kind of exit mechanism. Yeah. I mean, this has, I've been around a little while. Um, so, well, you know what? Sorry, let's get back on. We're, we're getting off track. Here. Okay, go on. <laughs> I had a point always to do. make. <laughs> yeah. That's just, just off track. That's our whole show. That's the zing part of texting. Zing is like where the ball is bouncing off the wall <laughs> to some new, completely weird direction. Right. Okay. So you want to go weird direction? Let's just jump to straight to fringe science. Okay. Go for it. Ready? Yeah. So there was an article in Wired called What to Make of Andre Rossi's Apparent Cold Cold Fusion Success. Did you see that about that cold fusion thing? Yeah. I'm just, I'm, what do I make of it? Well, I'm just going to read the headline very quickly. 
A physicist in Italy claims to have demonstrated a new type of power plant that provides safe, cheap and virtually unlimited nuclear power to the world without fossil fuels or radiation concerns. The only hitch? Scientists say the method, cold fusion, is patently impossible. They say it defies the laws of physics. Okay, hand back to you. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm calling bullshit on it. I think it's probably, you know, one of those, yeah, I don't know if it's fraudulent or it's just going to be, you know, big, uh, just let down. But it's called the ECAT or Energy Catalyzer. And the whole thing was like, this guy was giving demonstration. There's a bunch of journalists and scientists there. And um, apparently there's some big industrial power companies that are actually put in orders. Like they had like 13 orders or something for uh, these $2 million one megawatt power generators. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, but you know, there's uh, they were they were talking about how Fox and CNBC already, you know, did a little bit of coverage of it. But um, oh, I can't remember who what it was. It was it was another big um, a, a big uh, magazine. Basically, has as getting ready to write an article on it, and that's going to be more in depth to see if there's anything to it but well, i don't know well, well okay let's let's say there is something to it what does it mean for the world well i don't know i mean yeah so if there's some kind of um i don't know i mean like energy energy is our is one of the overall biggest concerns that we have i mean fossil fuels are very polluting and uh and uh things in petroleum in particular is running out and um that's that's a big deal well, he, <laughs> so, he makes a really good point which is basically he says look I don't care about the skeptics. I don't care whether scientists say it can't be done. None of that makes any difference to me. All I care is that the people who I sell my machines to buy it from me and they're happy customers. <laughs> it's a pretty good point. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, these, these, these customers aren't going to buy it. I mean, the, I mean, power companies aren't dupes. You know, they're they're, they're going to have their own scientists and engineers evaluate it. So if it works, it works, right? Right. Um, you know, and, and they'll pay for it. Otherwise, they're going to they're gonna have sophisticated lawyers and contract uh, and sophisticated contracts. And, you know, if the, if the stuff doesn't work, they're going to get their money back anyway. So it's not like you can really scam a power company very effectively, you know. So I don't know. It's kind of curious, right? It's curious that it sounds kind of like a kind of a bullshit thing. But um, these power companies... Apparently there's 13 of them and I don't know. We'll see. Well, uh, you know, I, I'll be, I'll be curious to find out what happens to it. It's crazy. It's a, it's a curious story. Okay. Well, talking about fringe science, did you see that very recently some scientists in, I'm not sure where I, I've, my hunches in Scotland have developed a new diet drug, basically a breakthrough diet drug that is a, a mistake on like, like it's like, um, a cancer drug that they were trying to develop that has essentially pivoted to be a weight loss drug. Huh. Did you hear about this? No. no. So so just in the same way that Viagra was like this kind of weird pivot of a drug that ended up being, um, well, you know what Viagra is. This drug, um, they were aiming at creating a scenario where cancer cells were were deprived of blood and so therefore the cancer cells would die. But they slightly, they, they created the drug, but it went, it missed the mark and it targeted fat cells. <laughs> so huh. basically, you, da- so you it take... Doesn't kill can- it doesn't kill cancer cells, it kills fat it cells. It kills fat cells. So you take the drug, it starves fat cells, and they die, and you just lose weight. <laughs> okay, there's, there's been no human trials yet, but they've done, they've done um, trials with um, uh, primates. And the primates basically lost um, a significant amount of weight without any other visible side effects now obviously you know, the, the primates lost some dress sizes is that what you're saying 
<laughs> yeah. Nice. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Schvelt, we got some Schvelt primates <laughs> there. So basically, I mean, that like there, there was none of the usual association with weight loss drugs. You know, normally with weight loss drugs, there'll be some kind of jitters or speed or just, you know, weird mental reactions or whatever. And, and the other thing is normally you, they will get more hungry, right? When you t- take these kind of diet pills, if they speed you up, you, you'll end up eating more in a sense because it'll speed up your metabolism. But this thing just kills the kills the fat cells, and what ends up is the fat cells end up being deposited in the bloodstream and then kind of excreted. But because they're in the bloodstream, it makes you feel really full, so you don't huh. eat. You even you eat even less. So are you going to be banging on the lab like next week? Like <laughs> yeah. I want to first human trials. <laughs> well, human trials are like they they think that human trials are going to be in two or three months. So. Oh, you can be signing up for that, man. I'm that's telling a you, I am, I am. It's a hell of a lot easier than that juice diet. That's right, that's right. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, well, it's funny. Um, you talk about the stimulant causing you to lose weight. So Sandy um, had like some sinus or congestion or whatever. So she was taking what, that Claritin D or something like that? Or one of these, you know, I don't know, whatever. But I guess it has a stimulant in it. And, and uh, she was telling me she's feeling a little jittery, that she's just, you know, wigging out a little bit by taking it. And, and it was funny because like, I went away f- for like three or four days for, to the San Francisco and I came back and I was like, did you lose weight? <laughs> you know, cause I was like, I mean, Sandy is a slender person anyway, but like, she just looked thinner. And like, I started wearing some jeans that I hadn't seen in a while. And I'm like, I was like, you lost weight. She's like, yeah, I was taking the Claritin D and it's like, I, I had no appetite. I couldn't well, eat anymore. She's like, I lost like five pounds in like, you know, three or four days or something. You know like that, that Sudafed like is one of the ingredients that that's used to make crystal meth. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, I obviously I, it's, I it's one of many ingredients, but it's one. Yeah. So I, I mean, she must've lost at least five pounds in a week. I mean, wow. I'm not advocating people doing, I think it was Claritin D, maybe it was something else, but yeah, I was like, I was sitting here looking at her. I'm just like, huh. <laughs> well speaking of weight loss whatever happened to the juice diet just give me an update i mean i won't grill you on it but okay yeah don't grill me um well i've i haven't been doing too great however i do have a kind of plan to do another 10 days starting tomorrow because i did do oh, really? 10 days before and i'm going to try and do 10 days starting tomorrow when i say i'm going to try that makes it sound like it's probably not going to happen but i'm really going to try okay so. well you know i've one thing i've noticed that I, i've done when i've lost weight so like the, my last weight loss thing happened around the same time you were doing that. And mine, mine are more exercise focused. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, I went down from like, I don't know, 205 to like 196, seven or whatever. And, and I'm probably back up around 98, 199, but it's like, you go in these drops, right? Like you could, you work out really hard or you diet really, you know, you, you watch your diet, but you can't do it forever. Right. So if what you can do is make a drop of like 10 pounds and then try and hold for like a month, you know, month or two months, maybe you gain a pound or two back and then you'd go and then you, you get your motivation up again and you make another jump. It's like a stock market buy and sell cycle. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's just so hard. Yeah. It's so hard to maintain that, that motivation and discipline for that long, whether it's, whether it's, you know, about dieting or not dieting, but it's just like, you know, managing your diet. Right. Or it's about exercising because, you know, for me to lose weight, I mean, you know, I was on the damn elliptical machine or whatever, like 50 minutes cranking out, you know, like, or an hour, I would go in like an hour trying to crank out. How cool out, like, would it be couch. if there was just, if everyone could just take a pill? And it was just yeah. like, instead of Viagra, the pill was just thin. <laughs> Be thin. Yeah. yeah, it's called Claritin D. <laughs> All right. 
<laughs> All right, so let's let's move on. Okay. Um, the other part, well, this isn't really fringe science, but I threw in the category because you know I, I can only have so many categories or so many segments. But in computing power, a deeper law than Moore's power. This is in the Economist. Hmm. And basically, it's saying that energy efficiency of computing is doubling every eighteen months. Hmm. So that you know how like these, you know, which is good because a lot of times these we get these smaller devices, but they're not nearly as hot as they used to be. Right? They would run. They use more energy. The battery life would last, not last nearly as long. But they also got really hot, like as they give off a lot of heat because then they used more energy. Do they do that through that- like pseudo parallelism? Like so, what? so, so basically, I, I don't know. I'm just I'm clutching at straws here. But do they do it through creating because there's so many little nodes that therefore l- less of more nodes are required? Or I don't know. I'm just I'm just I don't know what the hell you're talking about. But I'll just say yes. <laughs> Neither do I. <laughs> oh, but, sure. Yeah, that's what they're doing. But isn't it? Isn't it like the number of the number of um, little transistors that that makes it more. Well, powerful. yeah. Well, that's like the number of transistors on like a you know microchip or whatever is doubling it. That was Moore's law, right? The number of transistors. So, so is it the number of transistors that can make it less, you know, require less energy, or is that not related? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, they didn't really go into it that deep. It was the Economist. It wasn't Scientific American. So, right, right. You know, um, but you know, they, they're just it's getting more energy efficient. So you're having they're talking about like devices that are running off sort of ambient light and ambient heat and things like that and you know if it doubles every you know 18 months and 10 15 years you see like things that used to require batteries um or you know might be able to you know go off of, off of some kind of like um sunlight or something like that or or you know remember that there was a watch i remember a watch that it, it, it it's it's called the kinetic it was used kinetic energy or something so just your arm moving up and down when you're walking right that's that's an old energy. that's an old invention that was like 20 years ago. But yeah. that's really cool, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, imagine if they like, hey, my, my iPhone's running out. Just like shake it, you know? <laughs> it's kind of like, it's like, what's that guy doing? It's like he's trying to like, you know, shake like a, like a soda can to burst open or something. Just shake your, dude, just shake the, you know, the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, that totally exists for torches and stuff. Yeah, why not do that for the iPhone? Yeah. Okay. All right, okay, let's move off French science. What's next? Okay. How okay? Okay, I'll give you which talk do you want? Do you want the dark side, your brain on crack, or follow the money? Okay, look, we ended with the dark side last last discussion show, and it was kind of depressing. So let's get the dark side out of the way. Okay, all right, we'll do it quick. So here's another article from Wired called "Busted: Two New Fed GPS Trackers Found on SUV." So there's this guy, and essentially he takes his uh, car to uh, the mechanic, and they, you know, they, they, you know, they put it up on the lifts, right, and the hydraulic lift, and he's under, and he's like, sees this like antenna, kind of, you know, cu- poking out. He's like, what the hell is that? And he, and, the, and he points it out to the mechanic. The mechanic goes, I don't know. Look, let me take it out. And it was like this little transmitter attached to a battery. And the guy takes it home, and he, and he shows like his roommates. And they're like, dude, they like take pictures of it and put it up on Reddit. <laughs> People are like, what the hell is this? And some guy identifies this like FBI. You know, this is like a certain type of tracking device that the that different law enforcement, you know, um, agencies use that this company makes and only sells to law enforcement. Why law are they tracking him? Well, I mean, I guess it turns out that so he's um, Arab American, so they're right there. You're already kind of like in the danger zone, and his dad had was a leader in some kind of. Um, uh, Muslim uh, community organization. So that's already going to bring you higher up the list, right? And then I guess a friend of his wrote some 
kind of post that was a little crazy um, talking about saying something. He even just used bomb in the description and something, right? And then later, um, I think he – and he travels every once in a while to Dubai. So right there, there was enough, you know, dots. I just – I mean, I just watched um, J. Edgar Hoover, the movie today with Leonard DiCaprio, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Clint Eastwood. Don't give away any – don't – don't be any. Um, well, don't give away history. Spoilers. <laughs> don't give don't away any spoilers. historical spoilers no, about stuff that's already people. happened many years ago. Well, yeah, most a lot of people may not remember or don't know them that well. Okay. And you're just be careful what you say because people could be pissed. All right, I won't give away any spoilers. But what I will tell you this is this is that that guy basically single-handedly created the FBI. Like his his idea of it, like his his idea of centralization of thumbprints and, and, and information. And um, with his private file, I mean, really set a precedence for this kind of thing that we're talking about now. And mm-hmm. it, it's, it's just, I don't like it. It's scary. And there's, you know, the NSA, I've just, after looking at the FBI, I wanted to find out when the NSA was built. And I happened to stumble across an article about the NSA and the fact that they process you know, like 7 billion gigabytes of data every week or something like that, different data. And that could be Skype data and phone data and picking up on keywords. Oh, yeah. They, and it's they just built, scary shit, man. I mean, it's seriously they built, scary. They, they built something that's like somewhere in the w- out west. Um, I can't remember where it was, but it was like this something the size of like the Superdome to housing computers and um and uh disk space. I mean, they're just sucking down everything. I mean, we were talking about that last week about – um. You know, the uh, um, how uh, the government doesn't want to uh, is classified its interpretation of the Patriot Act. What do you think that is? I mean, it's like we're collecting information that we're that uh, we're going to interpret that how we're allowed to uh, interpret. But this show is being interpreted like like all broadcasts, podcasts, like well, they're listening to the show right now. When we say yeah, FBI, we're not, picked well, up. It's not like that. It's like you just have like these, you know, these sort of filtering, search and filtering things that goes through and and uh, and uh, collects information. And if you know, if enough points, you know, it's just like a spam detector, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like a spam detector. But what I'm telling you is, is that this show along with all other podcasts, along with all terrestrial broadcasts are listened to, along with all phone conversations and anything that's trackable is being tracked and listened to through their system. That's probably true. Um, and actually, if you want to know more about it, read The Shadow Factory by James Bamford. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? No. I mean, James Bamford, he was a big shot. He used to be like, um, I think he was like a, a he was like an editor for, um, Let's see. He was in has written for National Security for the New York Times, the Washington Post. Um, he's a big shot. He was a big shot investigative reporter, um, and uh, he wrote this this sort of expose on uh, the NSA called the Shadow Factory. And uh, you, yeah, that'll probably scare the crap out of you. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that Skype. I mean, I, I used to feel safe and think that Skype wasn't tracked because it was encrypted. But uh, reading, you know, and looking up on that, I'm thinking they completely have 256k encryption sorted look and yeah i mean anything you say are right yeah you can just assume is being monitored but the crash the reality is at least for us is that we're boring right there's nothing that we say or do that are of any interest to you know i mean it's like but it's just but it is it's an a principle yeah it's a principle right so anyway um the um Along those lines uh there was another article called um I think that was talking about how um, it says the case asks, okay, I was talking about the, there was a case about whether GPS tracking devices um, are a violation of um, the Fourth Amendment. 
the ban on, on unreasonable searches and seizures. And the, there's a big you know, fight over this. So there's, there's, the FBI has something that's called their Next Generation Identification Program, which they collect a centralized database of fingerprints, iris scans, facial characteristics, voice recognition, everything. And, uh, and the only reason that this, that, that, uh, the, the whole GPS tracking and the, and this, uh, next generation identification stuff is, or is coming to light is because of FOIA requests. And, uh, and it was, um, and then and what we were talking last week about how the government is trying to, our certain agency in the government are trying to fight for the ability to lie about the existence of documents. Right. So if I say, we know this document exists. We want you to release it. Well, if they say, oh, that document doesn't exist, they, can't, they don't have to respond. Right? Hmm. That's why it's so important that uh, things like FOIA not be diminished. So, um, and then along the same lines was the privacy law. There was a, the EFF, um, Electronic Frontier Foundation, just put out a um, press release about how um, a, uh, a district court judge in Virginia um, – ruled that uh i guess the i think it was the i didn't, I didn't specify it said federal investigators to collect private records on three uh, twitter users and in sort of in the whole wikileaks investigation yeah so they didn't have warrants but they just could go and collect information from twitter and the only reason they knew about it they, these people who knew that their information was being collected is because twitter uh, informed them but the judge blocked the users um attempt to discover whether other internet companies had been uh, ordered to turn the data over to the government. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, well, it's, it's just freaking scary. It's a horrible state of affairs. We're moving in some ways we're moving into a beautiful new era with the possi- with the possibilities of things like free energy and just great tech and just really cool, funky shit happening. But in other ways, when we start talking about this kind of stuff, I get scared and depressed about the, the possibilities. I mean, it's it's a it's a dark future and a bright future all in one. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the, I I'm not, I'm very I'm very optimistic about technology. I'm very pessimistic about um, things like that. Government, I guess. But I guess yeah. it's no different. I mean, it's just the same expression. It's like this has been expressed in every era before every age. So if you if you look at the J Edgar Hoover the way that he was, it was just the same as this without this kind of technology. Like they just make they just those kind of dark-minded people utilizing modern technology. Yeah, there are always going to be those people out there, and there are always going to be agencies and collecting information, you know, invading people's privacy, intimidating people, trying to control things. It's always, it's always going to happen. And it's just going to go and oscillate back and forth in terms of, like, you know, when there was less freedom and there's more freedom and more surveillance and less resistance. That's too depressing. Right, so let's move, that's too depressing. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Side. All right. So, um, and you're not allowed to bring up the dark side anymore. This is a family <laughs> show. <laughs> okay so um can you still i still sound pretty sick don't i you do well you do when you laugh like that you laugh like someone who's dying of like smoking yeah I feel like I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay so um we'll go to your brain on crack how about that go go nice okay so um there's an article it was tied, entitled if you're busy you're doing something wrong the surprisingly relaxed lives of elite achievers and it basically, they, they, it was about the study they did, I think it was in Italy, of two different, it was like of a music academy. And they took, um, they looked at, they went and looked at the average, what were considered by the music instructors as sort of their average middle of the road 
um, violinists and the elite violinists, the violinists that were going to go and probably um, play in one of the two major orchestras. Right. Whereas the, um, the middle tier people were probably going to be music teachers the middle tier of violinists. And what they did is they did this very in-depth logging of their, um, of their weekly um, habits, like when they played, when they studied, when they slept. And as it turned out, that the, um, the experts actually, I think, studied or, or practiced a little bit less than the middle tier, but the middle tier people didn't, um, they didn't do the, what we call deliberate practice. They kind of were kind of busy work, kind of doing stuff, kind of not. And so, I mean, the gist of it was that the, what they would do is they would do about three and a half hours. The true elite players would, would, would practice about three and a half hours a day in two separate sessions. And it was a big deal. It, they never did it all one block, but like once in the morning and once later in the day. And mm. each, you know, an hour and a half-ish or a little longer. Because anything after that, it's starts to be kind of diminishing returns. You just get too exhausted. And it was deliberate practice, really pushing the limits of things that they, that they needed to improve on. That sounds like exactly how I code and how I do my uh, contract work. Well, that's, then, you're, then you're getting the most out of your time. And it said that the elite people were actually less stressed and, um, and, and had a higher quality of life than the middle tier people because the middle tier people were always feeling stressed and never had enough time to practice. So these people would just, when they were practiced, they, just, it was, they, were, they, were, they were on it and they were totally focused and they were doing it in the right way. And then they were done. And, um, and they actually slept an average of an hour more a day, I think it was, almost an hour more a day. Because well, when I do, when I settle down for a coding session, like I basically um and are about it for about two hours, <laughs> like getting prepared. Oh, am I going to do it? I'm going to have a glass of water, sit down. No, I'm not ready. Go back and have a lie down. Well, okay. You're like that guy who's about to go out and take a swing at the, uh, you know, at, at the tee with a golf club. Right. He's like waggling and he keeps waggling it. It's like, dude, just swing at the tee. So then I sit down, right? And I just go, like really try and do it as fast as possible. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done. Yeah. I, well, I've learned that too. I mean, I don't, I don't pull all nighters. I don't work late to the night very often. I mean, I tend to just work in like, yeah, hour and a half sessions. That's why actually I can get a fair amount done in the week and in the weekends because like, you know, with kids and everything, I can't just like spend all day working, but what I can do is like do an hour and a half here, an hour and a half there. Yeah. Now I go and I take the kids to the park or go coach a soccer game or, you know, we all go out to lunch or whatever. And then you're back home for a while. Right. And the kids are off doing their thing. Right. It's like, okay, I got an hour and a half. They're all tired. They're exhausted. They're eating their lunch now and napping. You know, I can crank out work for an hour and a half, two hours. And if, if you you know you can get a lot done. It's not so much structured procrastination as procrastination. What do you mean? Like it's the the approach. You, I remember you telling me about this approach called structured pro- procrastination. Yeah, so, right. Okay. So this, so this, I think what we do isn't so much structured procrastination as just plain old procrastination. Well, I don't procrastinate that much. Well, I don't know. I procrastinate. No, you do because you do because I'll tell you what. If I call you up and you're in the middle of work. Like you will take the opportunity to stop working and have a good old chin wag and a good old chat. With yeah. Them. Well, that's why you're a bad person to know because you're a distraction. <laughs> <laughs> you call me up. You're like, let me brainstorm something with you. Middle of my work day. Like really <laughs> two hours later. You're like, dude. Yeah. I am easily distractible. If it's <laughs> so, so if like a friend of mine calls or that's why it sucked for me in college because people were always interrupting me. There was always people out talking, messing around and it would totally pull me off from what I was supposed to be doing. So I read a, um, 
I don't even, this doesn't really fit into a segment. I read a, a, an article that was in fast company about, uh, the guy who was the founder of color. I guess Bill Wynn is how you pronounce it. It's spelled Nigen or something. That guy is crazy, man. Uh, the funniest thing, I think I read something, something similar. Sorry for interrupting you, but it was really funny. And I just want to quote it. A VC said this color has become a punchline. You can stand up at a VC event and say color. And people will laugh wildly out loud without anything else needing to be said. This guy is kind of crazy, man. I mean, he's, he's had a few successful exits, a few successful companies. He's built like seven, and like three of them have done really well. And <clears throat> he could definitely, he can definitely, he definitely has the ability to raise money, and he can definitely sell a company. But I think he's, he's kind of crazy. So Jason's just having a coffin fit. So um, anyway, we've been speaking for at least an hour and a half. Uh, actually, we've got an hour and 40 recorded, but probably end up being an hour and a half after edited. So I think I'm going to call this this week's show and um, say that was, was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, I guess that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's a that's wrap. wrap. Okay, go on. You, you can say it if you, if you can say it. Go. All right. That's a wrap. We're out. <laughs>